Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for the 12th day of May of 2024, and it's Mother's Day, so a big happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Dave Stutz, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Nick Herter. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and Dear Abby. The third hour continues with more sports and lighter news. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Today, Sunday, we may see a high way up to 86 degrees, a low of 59, and perhaps a thunderstorm. Tomorrow, Monday, a high of 67, a low of 53, a shower, and again, perhaps a thunderstorm. And then on Tuesday, a high of 71 and a low of 51 clouds and sun, and it'll be a pleasant day. Headlines from today's Sunday Register. Croto vows its towing is not predatory. The business is facing legal and legislative uh, pressure. And six Iowa graduates are giving back. Students exemplify commitment to their communities and the state. And from the Metro and Iowa section, why are Iowa's, uh, why are flags in Iowa flying at half-staff? Well, it's a gesture to pay tribute to police officers. And a competency test is sought for an accused killer. The story comes for us from William Morris of the Des Moines Register. And an opportunity for affordable housing. And now let's uh, get started. Here's Nick with our first story. Croto vows it's towing, not predatory. Business facing legal legislative pressure. Croto sweeps of the crowded parking lot at Aspen Apartments on Des Moines East Side began last fall, and anger quickly followed. Residents complained their cars disappeared, sometimes two at a time. Tow truck drivers shined flashlights in vehicles in the middle of the night to find those without parking stickers. Residents who parked in guest stalls were towed. So were visitors who parked in stalls meant for residents. Some people contended the drivers tried to tow vehicles even though they had stickers and were in the right spaces. Each tow cost the tenants so much as much as $200 a tow, more than $40 for each day the vehicle sat in a crow tow lot, or $150 cash to release a vehicle after it was mounted on a truck. That children began warning adults when they saw a tow truck coming. Joe Ward, a 34-year-old mechanic with a girlfriend and kids at the complex, was so fed up after four of their vehicles were towed, he started a petition calling for local officials to end predatory towing in apartment complexes. Then last month, he said he started to... Tetanum Square tow trucks that tried to enter the complex by standing in front of them like the unidentified 1989 protester who blocked Chinese tanks in Beijing. 
Eventually, Ward's tactics got the attention of the complex's property management company, Liv Lander, and led to Des Moines police kicking him off the property. Ward said police Ward said police threatened him with arrest for trespassing and the mother of his children with eviction. With Croto's history, I thought management would be ready and willing to listen to tenants, he said. Management claimed I was the only person who had the problem, but everyone did. Since Randy Crow started his family business more than 20 years ago, Hundreds of clashes and confrontations have erupted between local residents and his employees across the metro and at the Croto's offices. One measure, from May 1, 2023 to May 1 this year, Des Moines police were called to the offices at 816 Southeast 21st Street 111 times. GNS Towing a competitor that does impound business for Polk County and the Iowa State Patrol had seven calls. Nearly 7,700 people signed up a change.org petition four years ago urging the Des Moines Police Department to end a contract with the company, and others since have criticized city leaders for accepting campaign donations from Crote or his wife, some of the most vocal complaints about Croto online and on social media have come from those upset with its parking enforcement at private apartments and businesses. Crow has a long man- maintained that non-consensual towing is a naturally confrontational business that is destined for flare-ups between unhappy scoff- scofflers who break parking rules and towing employees who are just doing their job. Working with apartment complexes, event centers, bars, homeless shelters, and small businesses, much of his business centers on that kind of towing, Crow told Watchdog last week. There's nothing predatory about this business, he said. We are, all we're doing is following up with what private property owners need done. He acknowledged the enforcement upsets people for a time, but he said conflicts die down sharply after folks learn to comply. It works so well for some businesses, he said, that they decide they no longer need Croto's services. With body cameras for drivers and extensive documentation, Croto insists his his towing service is the best you'll find in the Midwest. We're a glass fishbowl, he said. Nobody is more open and clear and transparent than our company. But when asked whether he pays business, uh, but whether he pays bonuses to drivers for non-consensual tows on private lots, something his critics say incentivizes aggressive towing and makes it predatory, Crow would not answer. That's none of your business, he said. As national consumer groups have raised public awareness about the negative impact of aggressive or predatory towing, Crow faces some big test ahead. At the, legislator, at the legislature, State Rep. Heather Matson, an Ankeny Democrat, is preparing to 
for a renewed push to pass a consumer protection bill that is similar to those emerging in other states. The measure, which had bipartisan sponsors this year, would prohibit frequent sweeping of private lots, among other measures. Matson said he has learned that Iowa has a lot of good towing companies, but also some of the least protection in the country for consumers whose vehicles are towed. She said she became interested in towing after reading a story on Axios last year about a man who had to pay Croto $1,000 in fees to retrieve a, a motorcycle that had been reported stolen, only to discover that it had been stripped for parts. Then she started listening to Iowans with towing stories. These are things that most people don't think about until it happens to you, but it's concerning what's happening to people, she said. I just kept hearing that same fed-up thing. In addition to Matson's legislative push, the lawyers for a 50-year-old woman severely injured in a November 2022 accident at Croto plans to challenge Crow's business practices in a high-stakes civil ne negligence case scheduled for trial June 3rd to 14. Melissa Quiros of Des Moines would up outside Crow tow that day with her brother and five-year-old niece after the company towed her car because it was parked over a yellow parking stall line at her apartment complex. The ridges in her the ridges in South Des Moines court documents show she was injured when an irate woman and an Helena Etchwheel, who didn't have the money to retrieve her towed car from the lot, decided to try and grab the vehicle off the lot and flee, court documents show. After a confrontation in the business office, Etchwheel ran to her car, drove it around Croto's police impound lot, and through its auction lot, crashed through an internal fence, and drove around a truck an employee had parked in front of the office and then to a front gate that employees closed to try to stop her. After a honking and mouthing move to Quiris, Etchwheel crashed through the gate, injuring Quiris so badly she needed restrictive face surgery. The lawsuit alleges the business had a duty to maintain safe premises for its patrons, but Croto countersued Etchwheel, saying she alone was responsible for injuring Queros. Seeing the gate closed with the person nearby, Etchwheel was not deterred, and despite knowing the risk a vehicle can cause when it hits a pedestrian, she found it more important to get away than avoiding an accident, said a court filing in a case by Croto's Omaha, Nebraska lawyer, Dan Ketchum. Queros' attorney, Jeff Goodman, has alleged in the in the lawsuit that Croto has a habit, routine, custom practice, and or reputation for treating its customers in a rude and confrontational manner, that it was warned by police before the accident that it needed de-escalation training for its staff, and that it failed to provide workplace safety training for employees. The lawsuit also alleges that Croto engages in predatory towing practices and pays $30 bonuses to drivers on top of their base pay for non-consensual tows, and that customers routinely become irate and threaten violence.
The case includes a long list of witnesses, including several Des Moines police officers and retiring Chief Dana Wigner. Several doctors, workplace safety experts, and current and former Croto employees, including Diana Horrendous Lopez, who was in its operations manager for seven years. Horrendous Lopez or Hernandez Lopez signed an affidavit for the court saying threats and verbal abuse happen on a daily basis. Patrons would throw things and spit on employees. Employees weren't trained to handle confrontations, and they couldn't call police unless Crow approved. It was clear during my time at Croto that in encountering violent or disgruntled people was an expected part of that job that everyone was expected to tolerate, she said in an affidavit. Other experts issued reports for the court saying Croto's habit of locking its front gate before angry customers tried to get their vehicles rather than letting them go and billing them later or calling the police contributed to the accident. Quiros declined through her lawyer to be interviewed for this story. Etchwill, who could not be reached for comment, wound up getting a deferred judgment last year after being charged with felony criminal mischief, serious injury by vehicle, and knowingly leaving the scene of an accident. Causing serious injury, she was ordered to serve four years on probation and pay more than $4,000 in fines and and be sent to prison if she violates the terms of her plea agreement. She also has retained a lawyer to fight Croto's counterclaim. In places like Chicago, problems with crowing or towing companies have gotten so bad that the city has placed cease and desist orders on companies accused of deceptive practices, holding vehicles hostage and demanding payments of thousands of dollars. In a few states, including Florida, Colorado, and Virginia, legislators have passed laws that try to better regulate bad actors after a mix of organizations have said predatory towing puts a sudden, unfair financial burden on people that leaves them in financial distress. Iowa law doesn't regulate how frequently companies tow or whether companies need to photograph vehicles before they are towed. It also doesn't require companies to accept credit card payments or release cars at no charge or for a smaller drop fee before a tow to a lot, reimburse drivers for vehicles damaged during towing, or provide access to personal belongings that may be inside a towed car. But in Polk County, the Board of Supervisors in 2021 decided to rescind a low-bid contract offer to Croto after complaints of thefts, high fees, and poor customer service. Police had been called more than 370 times from 2018 to 2020 leading up to the decision, mostly because of disputes. One unhappy customer was Supervisor Tom Hawkinsmith, who said the company tried to tow his car while he was briefly parked downtown in a fire lane and dropping off packages for his daughter. County Administrator John Norris said this month he's heard no complaints since GNS Towing Service took over the contract. Daryl Beam, who runs GNS Towing, said people do complain sometimes when their vehicles are towed or sold at auction after not being retrieved. 
but Croteau's business practices are much different from those of G&S, he said. If there's no sticker in the car, they tow the car, he said. The reason why property managers want to do it that way is that they don't want to take the responsibility of saying, hey, I don't want this car towed. That's why we don't do that many on private property. I don't, want, I don't put my guys in that situation. We try to treat people like I want to be treated, he said. We just have different principles. Beam said GNS requires an apartment manager to sign off on having a car towed before it is removed from a lot, and he said his drivers make a commission on top of their wages for each tow, but they don't get bonus pay for non-consensual tows. Des Moines Police Sergeant Paul Parizek said owners whose vehicles are towed pay an administrative fee of $20 at the police department to have their car released from the impound lot at Croto, a rate that has been steady for about 20 years. Owners then go to Croto to retrieve their vehicle where they pay the tow and storage fee that Croto charges. If the vehicle is abandoned by the owner and goes to auction, we pay the tow and storage fees to Croto, he said. Any proceeds from that sale of the vehicle above what we paid to Croto goes to the state. Diana Talty is chief of staff for Vareco, the Colorado umbrella company for Vivlander, which, she, which manages Aspen Apartments. She said the company hired Croto last fall because the complex was having a problem with broken down cars and unauthorized vehicles, and it wanted to protect the safety of residents and prevent the lot from getting junky. She said tenants were given a warning about the changes last October and told them they were responsible for notifying visitors. They also were given guest parking passes at no cost as well as their own parking stickers. As long as people are following the guidelines, they will not be towed, Talty said. She said she would look further into the residents' complaints about Croto's ethics. We care too, and we want the residents to be happy, she said. Ward, who used to work for cars for residents for extra money at the complex, and his girlfriend, Essence Hudson, who has a baby girl at home and two boys with autism, both said the property manager's choice has had a big financial impact on them personally. Ward said he was forced to sell a Ford Thunderbird because he didn't have the money to pay the tow fees and get it off Croto's lot. I wound up having to sell my car just to get my belongings out of it, Ward said. Hudson said Croto put, their, put her in a financial sinkhole. Other residents voiced similar complaints, some saying they intend to move at the end of their current lease, leases because parking is such a hassle, and some complained they got no chance to make their case to the property manager before Croto took action. Resident Hayworth Hicks said he awoke to find a driver attempting to tow his Ford F-150 pickup in the middle of the night. He said he had a parking sticker but had parked in a guest space in front of his building because there wasn't another space available in the lot. He said, give me $150 and I'll let it go right now. Hicks said, I wanted to hurt him. I really did. If he hadn't had that body camera on, it would have been a lot different. I had to borrow money from my pops to pay it off.
Thank you, uh, Nick. Improving lives through engineering. An Iowa State grad aids those with brain injuries recover. The story was uh, submitted by Fred Love from the Iowa State University Special Contribution to the Register. For Cassandra Swacker, engineering is a way to help people. Majoring in mechanical engineering and minoring in biomedical engineering at Iowa State University equipped Schwacker with the skills to design and manufacture personalized utensils and devices for people with traumatic brain injuries. Her quest to help others through engineering began when she was in high school, when she saw how a prosthetic leg changed her father's life. She'll graduate at the end of this semester, which concluded this week, and her engineering quest will continue as she begins her career developing innovative solutions in technology and manufacturing. Biomedical engineers need to be involved in all those things to understand the biology and anatomy components of how machines interact with people, Schwacker said. They also need to understand the design and manufacturing process of those machines. Schwacker, an Urbandale native, witnessed the power of biomedical engineering when her father was diagnosed with ankylosing uh, spondylitis, a type of arthritis that can affect the spine, knees, ankles, and hips. The condition caused severe wear on her father's ankle bones. He had metal plates implanted, but eventually elected to have his leg amputated below the knee and replaced with a prosthetic. The prosthetic improved her father's mobility dramatically. Around the same time, Schwacker took an engineering design course in high school, and she started thinking about how engineering affects people, including her father, in countless ways. My brain had that little light bulb moment of, oh, the people who are making prosthetics are engineers, she said. She discovered biomedical engineering, a fast-growing field that utilizes innovations in materials and technology to develop devices and equipment to enhance human and animal health. When she finally got his prosthetic and I was able to see just how big of an improvement it made for him, it was really inspiring, and I wanted to be able to have that direct of an impact on people's quality of life, which got me interested in the biomedical field, Schwacker said. She enrolled at Iowa State because of the university's strong engineering programs and proximity to family. She decided to major in mechanical engineering and pick up a minor in biomedical engineering. Schwacker began her first year at Iowa State during the fall of 2020, at a time when the pandemic forced most classes to be held remotely. The challenges of the pandemic taught her to work independently on her courses. They also helped her appreciate the classroom experience when in-person instruction resumed. She landed an internship with Iowa State's Center for Industrial Research and Service, which partners with businesses and communities across Iowa to develop tailored strategies to grow and prosper. In just the last five years, CIRAS and its partners have helped more than 4,600 businesses in every Iowa county, creating an economic impact of more than $3.1 billion. 
Among the organizations helped by CIRAS is On With Life, an agony-based rehabilitation clinic that helps patients recover from traumatic brain injuries and other neurological conditions. Swagger saw an opportunity with On With Life to apply what she was learning in her biomedical engineering courses. Because brain injuries manifest a wide range of symptoms, On With Life's patients often require personalized equipment and devices. 3D printing technology offers a way to create unique devices to precise specifications, so Swacker got to work familiarizing herself with the technology. She custom-built eating utensils, such as plate covers and silverware handles, for patients whose injuries affected their fine motor skills. The adaptive plate cover she developed clips onto the top of a plate with strategically placed gaps that expose only a portion of the food. This helped a patient whose brain injury caused a compulsion to eat too fast to slow down to a healthier pace. On With Life CEO Gene Selton praised Schracker's work. Brain injury rehabilitation calls for an individualized approach for services, Shelton said. No one brain injury is like another due to the many functional areas of the brain. We are grateful for Cassie's work as she was able to address a very specific need through technology that aids an individual and their family to manage impulse control related to food. The plate she created allowed for a balanced meal approach without the visual distraction of the other foods on the plate. The plate is still in use. Schwacker even developed an eye for aesthetics in her 3D printing designs. She learned one particular patient who was a fan of Harley-Davidson motorcycles didn't like the way some of the specialized eating utensils looked. So she designed one to resemble the handlebar of a motorcycle, complete with a flame finish. Many of her designs got rave reviews from end users, she said. Her work with CIRAS and On With Life taught her numerous lessons about engineering design, utilizing cutting-edge technology, and problem-solving. In the months ahead, Schwacker said she plans to move to the Iowa City area to pursue a career in manufacturing uh, engineering. She said she'll apply all the lessons she learned studying at Iowa State and working for On With Life as she begins her career. Lessons like never hesitating to ask questions and forging relationships with the people she's working with. Perhaps most importantly, she'll launch her career with first-hand knowledge that good engineering can help people and change lives. Northern Lights on full display across U.S., Europe. The Northern Lights provided a rare sight for residents across the U.S. and around the world Friday night with a powerful solar storm fueling a spectacle seen as far south as the Florida Keys. Because the sun has been emitting strong solar flares since Wednesday morning, the northern lights were visible across a wide swath of North America and Europe. 
seven coronal mass ejections began entering the Earth's outer atmosphere on Friday, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The agency issued a rare severe G4 geomagnetic storm watch last week for the first time in 19 years, but announced Friday evening that extreme G5 conditions reached Earth at 6.54 p.m. Eastern Time. The last extreme event occurred with the Halloween storms of October 2003. Because the sun is at the height of its 11-year cycle, conditions were optimal for the auroras to put on a light show that electrified sky watchers and appeared to farm more Americans than usual. I never, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would see it from my front yard in Key Largo, Florida, said Mike Thies, a veteran extreme nature photographer and storm chaser. Thies set, had been seeing the news about the solar storms all day Friday and was a bit jealous he would miss out on the auroras, but when he started seeing photos posted in real time on social media in South Carolina, then Georgia and the Bahamas, incredulous, incredulous about the, that sighting, he figured he'd take a chance. I walked out the front door and there was, were the lights. I could see a faint red glow with the naked eye, these said. I was looking at the northern lights. I still can't believe it. Sky gazers who didn't have a chance to catch the northern lights on Friday had another chance Saturday, as forecasters predicted the aurora would be visible across much of the United States, weather permitting. There were several reports of power grid irregularities and functional, de functional decreases in high-frequency communications and GPS systems, according to a report from NOAA. Thank you, Nick. Here's a story submitted by Ryan Hansen of the Iowa City Press Citizen. University of Iowa professors warn what's ahead for journalists. Professors see ethical and moral questions and a whole lot of uncertainty lying ahead in the field of journalism. The University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication surpassed the century mark earlier this spring, marketing its 100th birthday with a celebration of the past, present, and future. The school inducted three alumni to its Hall of Fame, adding to an accredited list of journalism icons. At a celebratory dinner, speakers included current young student journalists, with already prestigious resumes and tenured professionals with lengthy experience in some of the country's biggest markets. In the midst of the celebration, the press citizen spoke to two seasoned professional journalists turned professors about the future of journalism added as it adapts to fast-evolving technologies, including artificial intelligence, and how they are adjusting their teaching to that fast-morphing landscape. Minaski Gigi Durnham spent years as a journalist and editor before coming to the University of Iowa. She holds a Ph.D. from the University of Florida and teaches courses on magazine writing, media ethics, gender and mass media, and more. 
Over her two decades in Iowa City, Durham has published four books and numerous scholarly articles exploring the moral and ethical guidelines and boundaries of journalism. One of her books explored rape culture and the media. Another, the sexualization of young girls in media. Her most recent article explored the impact of photojournalism on the napalm girl, a Vietnamese child seen fleeing, severely burned by napalm bombing in the Pulitzer-winning 1972 photograph. Durham has turned, has been tuned into media ethics for decades. New technology is bringing even more ethical concerns to the forefront of media we consume every day, she said. Ethical guidelines have always been critical, she said, but they've changed in ways that we're not only sort of starting to understand, she said. How do we cope with these deep fakes? How do we cope with disinformation? How do we have prominent people who lie? Not that lying's new, but how do we deal with that? On the educational side, the emergence of AI and the explosion of new technologies over the past 15 years has forced the School of Journalism to be running as fast as we can to stay in the same place, Durnham said. But to her, that's a good thing. It's resulted in new faces in the program, people whom Durnham describes as digital natives, keeping a keen eye on the ever-evolving media landscape. In her view, they provide resources for students that outpace the professional newsroom training on specific niches. I just feel like we're flourishing right now, she said, citing a deeper focus on community connection with the school's recent purchase of two eastern Iowa newspapers, fresh leadership and evolving curriculum to keep students as connected as possible to the changing media landscape. Don McLeese unexpectedly found his way into teaching about two decades ago. The longtime journalist had spent decades racking up bylines across the country writing about music. Originally a record store owner, McLeese said that when he started, the journalism business was, quote, a license to print money, end quote. In his 20 years of teaching, McLeese said the hunger and need for journalism has only continued to grow while the strong business model on which organizations have built has collapsed. That, coupled with some of the same fears shared by Durnham, has fed into his uncertainty moving forward. I'd have trouble predicting five years from now, McLeese said. Despite that uncertainty, McLeese says he believes the J School has remained anchored to the same general principles he taught before iPhones and learned before personal computers, reporting, storytelling, and personality. We're not just a trade school, McLeese said. We're not simply preparing people for jobs, because whatever technology we have will likely be outdated by the time they're five years into their profession anyway. We have to train them to be able to recognize what the common elements are across the board. McLeese is retiring from teaching at the end of the academic year, but keeping his pen in hand wherever he sees fit to tell a story. He echoed Durham's belief that the university's school of journalism and mass communication is as strong or stronger than at any point in the 20 years I've been here. That's down to keen 
teaching instructors, uh, keeping focused on the key static tenets of journalism, education, and the revolving door of new technology. We are capable of doing better journalism now than ever before with the resources we have at our fingertips, McLeese said, and we are vital in training not only the journalists of tomorrow, but also the citizens of tomorrow. Nick? Here's some more information on Croto in Des Moines. Uh, Croto owners donate to leaders have given thousands to Des Moines counselors the owners of Croto the controversial towing service that impounds cars for the city as well as doing private towing have been donors to Des Moines city leaders in political races that included last year's contests when Dawn Thornton, who runs the business with her husband Randy Crow, gave six thousand five hundred dollars to the to City Council member Linda Westergaard, five thousand dollars to now Mayor Coney Boson, and two thousand five hundred dollars and a thousand dollars respectively to council members Chris Coleman and Joe Gatto. State records show. Boson said Tuesday she wasn't immediately aware Thornton and Crow's wife aware Thornton was Crow's wife until someone told her after she received the donation, but she said it doesn't prevent her from doing her job. She said she also wasn't aware of recent allegations of predatory towing by Croto raised in a civil lawsuit filed by a woman severely injured at Croto in 2022. Among the claims in the lawsuit, which goes to trial in June, the company pays drivers bonuses to do non-consensual towing from private lots, leading them to tow more aggressively. Employees also demand cash tow fees from people towed non-consensually from private lots and charge much higher rates than what the city pays for police impounds. Boston said she will look more into those complaints against the company in the next couple of weeks. Westgard acknowledged she received a donation from Thornton last year, but said she doesn't think she gives Croto any special treatment as a result. She said Randy Crow deserves praise for doing good works in Des Moines, such as donating cars to women in need and fixing problems at Logan Park Apartments, an east side apartment complex that had drug and crime problems a couple of years ago in its parking lot. I think it's pretty impressive, but no one wants to talk about the good things he he does, <clears throat> said Westgard, who represents Ward 2 on Des Moines East Side. Gatto, who represents most of the city's south side, where Croto is located, said he'd not heard complaints of Croto aggressively towing in his ward, though he has, though he has in other parts of the city. What I've always been told is that no one is ever happy to get their car towed, he said. Since I've been on the council, police have always recommended Croto. Gatto also acknowledged he uses Croto when people leave cars in the parking lot of his restaurant, Barada's on Union Street. Both Westgard, Westergaard and Gatto said that until Watchdog in- inquired, they had no knowledge of the allegation that the company gives bonus pay to drivers for non-consensual tows from private lots. Last year, council member Josh Mandelbaum, who represents Des Moines downtown and part of its west side in Ward 3, raised predatory towing 
Croto and Thornton's political donations has issued in his losing bid for mayor against Boson. About three years ago, Mendelbaum tried to pass an ordinance aimed at prohibiting predatory towing that would have included better signage warning of towing risks and capping towing fees. Instead, he said the council discussed the issue during a work session and decided to handle complaints individually by having businesses, business owners put up clear signs. Mandelbaum said he still thinks the city needs to needs an ordinance as complaints against Croto continue. I get that I get that the property owner has a right to control their parking, but there are multiple ways to do it without taking advantage of residents and visitors to a community, he said. Coleman said that Coleman said the issue is a compliance or a complicated one, affecting private property owners, their contracts with private tow companies, and residents like himself who have been towed when they didn't realize they had parked in restricted lots. But it's an issue the city should have a position on, he said. I look forward to working with Con Connie on how we can address it, he said. I get and understand people's frustration. I also understand it's private property. But Coleman, who said he also wasn't aware of the alleged spiffs or bonuses paid to Croto workers, said he would want to make sure the solution to the controversy is po controversy is pointed in the pointed to the right spot. I think there are ways we could build more goodwill and still protect people's property and auto work auto owners, he said. I'd like to have the community feel better about how we're doing this. Thank you, Nick. And here is a story submitted by Kate Keeley, the Des Moines Register. Flags are at half-staff again this week and will be for a while. Last weekend was to honor firefighters, and this time is for another public servant, police officers. Governor Kim Reynolds ordered flags in Iowa to be lowered to half-staff starting Friday morning and concluding Saturday, May 18th. National Police Week began Friday, and flags will remain at half-staff for its duration. Two Iowa police officers who died in 2023 while serving were honored at the Iowa Peace Officer Memorial on Friday morning. This year's memorial remembers Officer Kevin Cram of Algona Police Department and Officer Fukam Tran of the Des Moines Police Department. Officer Cram and Officer Tran serve their communities with pride and compassion, Reynolds said. As we reflect on the impact of their lives and service, let us never forget the lasting sacrifice of uh, and the significance of the sacrifice they made to their brothers and sisters in law enforcement. You are the legacy keepers of our fallen heroes, Reynolds said in a news release. Your willingness to carry it forward in this noble profession inspires all of us. Cram was shot and killed while trying to make an arrest in the north-central Iowa town in September. Tran was hit by a truck while directing Iowa State fair traffic in August of 2011. He was forced to retire because of his injuries. He died in November of 2023 at the age of 65. 
Flags will be at half staff on the state capitol building and on flag displays in the capitol complex, according to the governor's announcement. Flags will be at half staff on all public buildings, grounds, and facilities throughout the state. While individuals, businesses, or local governments are not mandated to lower flags, the governor encourages them to do so. Half-mast is used when a flag is flown from a flagpole, typically referring to a ship-mast or similar structures, according to the federal flags. Half-mast means the flag is flown two-thirds up between the top and bottom of the flag staff. Half-staff is the term used for flags on land, particularly in the United States. Half-staff describes a flag that is raised halfway between the top and bottom of the flagpole. When the American flag is flown at half-staff, it conveys a message of respect and mourning. Federal flags says this custom is most often observed following the death of a government official, military personnel, or in response to a national tragedy. And another story, this one is submitted by William Morris of the Des Moines Register. Competency test sought for accused killer. A man accused of shooting and killing an Algona police officer last year may not be competent to stand trial, his attorney told the court this week. Kyle Rickey, 43, of Algona, is charged with first-degree murder in the killing of Officer Kevin Cram. Prosecutors have said that Cram, age 33, was admitted to well, excuse me, was attempting to arrest Ricky on September 13 over an outstanding warrant for harassment when Ricky opened fire, killing him. Ricky is alleged to have shouted afterward, too late, and that I did it because I am tired of this expellate deleted. He was arrested in Minnesota after a four-hour manhunt. Ricky has been in custody since his arrest and was scheduled to stand trial beginning June 25th. On Tuesday, though, defense attorney Matthew Pittenger filed a motion asking the court to order a competency evaluation for his client. Pittenger said he, was, he has concerns regarding Ricky's ability to assist in his defense and appreciate the charges against him due to his mental condition. If an evaluation determines Ricky is not competent, it would likely result in a lengthy delay to the case. Iowa has limited capacity to produce competency restoration treatment, with some defendants waiting more than six months for a bed to open up. Prosecutors have not filed any response to Pittenger's motion, but on Monday they informed the court they did not oppose the request by the defense to move the trial out of Kosuth County. Criminal defendants can ask to be tried in a different venue if overwhelming publicity and public awareness of the alleged crime will make it difficult to seat an unbiased jury. The Iowa Attorney General's Office, which is prosecuting the case, indicated in its filing on Monday, that it agrees that a fair and impartial jury cannot reasonably be selected in Scothus County. Prosecutors 
Scott Brown and Ryan Baldridge noted that the Alcona community has publicly rallied to support Cram's family, making it likely many potential jurors will be familiar with and have opinions about the case. Although Kosuth County residents are, like most Iowans, fair-minded people who are capable of abiding by their oath and would make good jurors, venue of this particular trial is better situated elsewhere, the prosecutors wrote. It will be up to the court, should it agree, to the venue change to choose where the trial will take place. Brown and Baldrige suggested the judge look to counties with demographics similar to Kosuth's and considered convenience of travel for Cram's family and witnesses for both the state and the defense. And a story from uh, Philip Sitter of the Des Moines Register. Waukee has given Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity approval to build the nonprofit's first townhomes, and that's, that's townhomes, in Iowa. The affordable townhomes are part of Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity's continuing priority to build multifamily homes, said CEO Lance Henning. The nonprofit plans to bring more dense housing near job centers in the Des Moines metro. We're trying to create choice, he said. For Waukee, it's an opportunity to bring affordable housing to a 13.6-acre parcel at North Warrior Lane and Northeast Douglas Parkway that uh, it's been trying to develop for years. The Waukee City Council on Monday unanimously approved a development agreement with Habitat to build 48 townhomes uh, units on the northern section of the property. Henning said the townhomes would be 1,100 to 1,300 square feet. Some would be single-story, while others would be two-story. He said the standard units will have three bedrooms and two bathrooms, but there will be some four-bedroom options as well. And let's see, this story does continue... Uh, Northeast Douglas Parkway splits the property into northern and southern sections. The city's original development proposal called for two 64-unit townhome complexes, one on each side of the road, to be built by Wisconsin-based North Point Development. But the development agreement was rescinded last year because Waukee did not receive a competitive 9% low-income housing tax credit from the Iowa Finance Authority, which left a funding gap. In March, the Waukee City Council approved new plans with North Point for the development to buy about six and a half acres in the southern parcel for one dollar and build 46 rental townhomes. Habitat also is expected to build 14 owner-occupied units on the south side, though those plans depend on the housing tax credit, which typically is awarded in the summer. This week, the council approved a plan to have Habitat, the to to give Habitat the northern half of the property for one dollar. The nonprofit will also get uh, five hundred thousand dollars in tax increment financing for the development. That would still leave a seven hundred and twenty thousand dollar funding gap for the project. But Habitat plans to apply for that money through the state's workforce housing 
tax credit program, according to city documents. Nick Osborne, Waukee Assistant City Administrator, said the application for that tax credit is due in June and an award will be expected in August. Habitat would have until the end of 2024 to substantially begin work on the property, and the construction of at least 12 townhomes would be due by the end of July of 2026. All 48 townhomes would be due by the end of July of 2028, according to the development agreement. Osborne said sale of Habitat's townhomes would be restricted to buyers who make 80% or less of the area medium income, which is which in 2024 is $60,300 a year for a single person or $90,400 a year for a family of four, according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Buyers would contribute what the nonprofit calls sweat equity to help build their home. Habitat also would have a period of exclusivity for buyers with ties to Waukee, such as families with students in the Waukee Community School District or employees of businesses in the suburb. Osborne said Habitat would be required to keep the income limitations for at least 21 years. In June, Greater Des Moines Habitat for Manatee broke ground on the first duplexes in the metro, making those uh, 1,200 square foot, uh, three, three and four bedroom units, the first ever Habitat for Humanity homes to be built in Ankeny. Henning said Habitat has built other duplex developments across Iowa and is planning for more multifamily options in the metro. We're trying to put housing near where the jobs are, Henning said. Habitat announced in December it had raised more than $7.6 million toward a $10.5 million fundraising goal for its Framing Our Future capital campaign. The campaign aims to build a financial foundation for several of the organization's housing priorities, including multifamily developments, according to an an announcement published in the Build Des Moines online magazine. Henning said Tuesday fundraising for the campaign has reached about $9.4 million. Major corporate donors have included $1.5 million from American Equity Investment Life Insurance Company, $1 million from Kemen Industries and the Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines, and a half a million dollars from Athene. More information about donating and volunteering with Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity is available at uh, gdmhabitat.org. And Nick, with a short story to take us up to the top of the hour and our birthday announcements. El Nina changes chances grow more certain for this year. Climate troublemaker La Nina isn't here yet, but it's on its way. Federal weather forecaster said in a report released Thursday. In fact, forecasters from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration gave the climate pattern as much as an 85% chance of forming by late fall. We are very confident that El Nina will form by this fall, Nat Johnson, an NOAA meteorologist, told USA Today. 
Once it forms, it's also supposed to last through next winter and will thus affect U.S. weather throughout the coldest months. Of more immediate concern is that there's a 69% chance it will develop by the summer's months, July through September, NOAA added. This is key because a full-fledged La Nina could worsen the severity of the Atlantic hurricane season, the heart of which is typically in September. La Nina is a natural climate pattern marked by cooler-than-average seawater in the central and eastern Pacific Ocean. When the water cools at least 0.9 degrees Fahrenheit below average for three straight months, uh, al, uh, La Nina is declared. Surprisingly, this, that small amount is enough to affect weather and climate patterns in the U.S. and around the world. The, the cycle between La Nina and its siblings El Nino is hugely important for agriculture worldwide. El Nino generally brings wetter conditions to the Americas, while La Nina has the opposite effect. El Nino is technically still in effect, but is fading fast, soon to be replaced by what's known as Enso Neutral conditions, which is an intermediate stage between La Nina and El Nino. NOAA's forecast favors an Im imminent transition to ENSO neutral conditions with La Nina developing during July-September 2024 and then persisting through the Northern Hemisphere winter. The entire natural climate cycle is officially known by climate scientists as ENSO, which stands for El Nino. Southern oscillation, a sea saw dance of warmer and cooler seawater in the central Pacific Ocean. Actually, this transition appears to be occurring rather quickly, Johnson told the USA Today. We are unlikely to experience many seasons of ENSO neutral conditions before the onset of La Nina, whereas on some other occasions we may experience more than a year before transitioning to La Nina. The strength of the El Nino is likely a major factor factor uh, for why this transition is fast, he added. It's not unusual for strong El Ninos to transition quickly to La Nina, as the discharge of heat away from the tropical Pacific tends to be more dramatic following a strong El Nino. A typical La Nina winter in the U.S. brings cold and snow to the northwest in unusually dry conditions to most of the southern tier of the U.S., according to NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. The southeast and mid-Atlantic also tend to see warmer-than-average temperatures during La Nina winter.